0: Well, I was not initially planning on giving this uh, State of the Church 2024 sermon. I kind of just forgot that that I did this last year. And uh, yet, because of where we are in Mark's gospel, and because uh, I only got through half of my sermon last week, uh, I'm doing a kind of two-for-one this week. So uh, this sermon really is just all the application from last week. That I didn't get a chance to do. And so I'm not actually going to expound those proverbs, but to those with uh, ears to hear, they will see that I am, uh, those proverbs uh, will summarize a lot of the exhortations I'm going to give you today. So uh, just to briefly refresh. Our memories of what we talked about last week, especially if you uh, missed it. Um, I think actually last week was the longest sermon I've ever preached here. So uh, uh, apologies or you're welcome depending on which camp you're in. <laughs> um, but last week <laughs> last week, uh, uh, we were in Mark chapter 12 verses 13 to 17. And there we saw that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the highest Jewish authorities are all trying to catch Jesus in his words. And why? Well, because Jesus is a threat to their political power. So they're trying to do everything they can to either discredit Jesus before the populace, the Jewish masses, or alternatively provoke him to run afoul of the Roman authorities. Now they thought that they had the perfect question to trap Jesus, which was, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? If Jesus answered yes, then he would lose credibility with the masses who, of course, nobody likes taxes. So, hey, someone comes along, I'm going to be your king and take away your taxes. Everyone's like, hey, sign me up. I will vote for you. So they're thinking if he says yes, then he's going to lose credibility with the masses. However, if Jesus answers no, well, then they can just haul him before the authorities as someone who is stirring up rebellion or sedition or treason of some kind. So Jesus responds, as we saw, by making the Herodians and the Pharisees answer their own question. And he does this by asking for a coin. So they give to Jesus this denarius with Caesar's name and inscription on it. And what this reveals in front of everyone is that they approve of the tribute. So however they want to posture, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Jewish authorities, they approve of the tribute because here they are with the coin, with this uh, blasphemous image on it within the temple complex. And this proves that they are being uh, hypocritical in asking Jesus this question. Nevertheless, Jesus gives them an answer which makes them marvel. Uh, The answer in so many words is give back to Caesar what Caesar has given them, namely this coin with uh, Caesar's head on it, uh, that, that tribute, he says, yeah, pay the tax, give back to him what he has given. But also... And equally, give back to God what God has given you. What has God given you? Well, everything. Uh, God's image is on Caesar. God's image is on you. And God's image is on the saints doubly so because God inscribed his name upon you in baptism. When we say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is imprinting the triune name upon your soul. So far from uh, Christianity undermining or nullifying our many earthly duties to our earthly uh, authorities, God commands and requires that we give back to God what belongs to him. And uh, the way that we do that is by giving to our earthly superiors what is their due. This is everywhere in the New Testament. So the New Testament gives us many specifics as to how to do this. I'll give you just a few examples. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar and render to God, and then Paul says things like this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is just. Children obeying their parents is following the same principle as render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Same principle, Parents are an earthly authority with limits fixed on their authority, and children have duties to those parents, which is honor, obedience, fifth commandment. So this is children rendering, giving back to your parents what is due to them, right? Naturally speaking, none of us would be here unless our parents uh, made us to be here. Right? Unless our mother carried us uh, for nine months and gave birth to us and you know, changed our diaper, fed us, did all those things, we have a duty to them because of that. They gave to us, we give back to them. That's just basic fifth commandment stuff. This also means, and uh, this is often in the same section or right after it in Ephesians, Colossians, etc., Paul will also say things like, Servants, obey your masters. So in modern day, you know, employees, obey your bosses. According to the flesh, and then he adds this section we all really like, not only to the good and gentle, but also to to the unreasonable and harsh. Why? He goes on, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So this is, Christians have a higher duty to even their... You know, terrible bosses, unreasonable and harsh masters. It says, "Yeah, even serve them if they're not good and gentle." Like you know, maybe I don't know if Joe is good and gentle, uh, but you know, even if Joe was unreasonable and harsh, all the Mount Capra employees need to listen to him. Right? Am I getting hitting too close to home? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) it's really quiet in here. All right, this also means. Masters, Joe has, has, du- has a duty too, uh, Frank too, um, and, and it is, do the will of God from the heart, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, judge justly, without partiality. Uh, he'll say, leave off threatening. Why? Knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. He will reward and punish each according to his works. So you see, there's this chain of authority that all of us are under. So if you're uh, a husband, you have a duty to your wife, and those duties are enumerated for you in the Bible, right? You, if you are a wife, you have duties to honor and reverence your husband, and God tells you where to do that. If you're a kid, and, and so on and so forth. So when Jesus says, render to God what belongs to God, this includes rendering to our various earthly authorities the submission, obedience, honor, and tribute that is due to them. Because as Romans 13 says, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, Romans 13, to 2 Now uh, we live in a day and culture not totally unlike the Jews and Christians in the first century. And that means there are times when Caesar claims something that does not actually belong to him. So while Jesus commanded that they pay tribute to Caesar in the form of the denarius, he is also, by that those same words, forbidding giving worship to Caesar as if he is Lord. Jesus' words establish limits on what Caesar can claim. So uh, when the Romans started to persecute the Christians, as they eventually did, and they required the Christians to offer sacrifices to Caesar and worship him as Lord, the faithful refused even unto death. Right? We heard uh, Luke read in Revelation 2, God is telling the saints, hey, you guys are going to be persecuted for this amount of time. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you uh, the crown of life. Jesus says, um, uh, so when the the Romans started to uh, require Christians, you know, offer the incense to Caesar, they would not render it because to Caesar, worship does not belong. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 4.10, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So all this to say there is a line, there's a boundary that Christians must not cross in our submission to the God-ordained authorities. That line is when the government commands us to sin. And the same applies for if you're a wife or if you are a child, uh, you obey the authority above you, whether that's your parents or your husband, except when they command you to sin. So, if mommy and daddy says go steal that car, <laughs> uh, you don't go steal the car, and you suffer the consequences of not obeying because you obey God rather than man in that instance. So, this applies at the lowest level, but it also applies at the highest level when the government uh, tries to command Christians to sin as the Romans were trying to do in the first century. So we have to remember this is the line. The line is when the government commands us to sin. We also have to remember at the same time that it is not a sin to be stolen from. It is not a sin to be on the receiving end of someone else's sin, right? This is like what Christ received. He was perfect, and yet he's on the receiving end of all sorts of lawlessness. So it's not a sin to be an oppressed people like the Jews were in Egypt or like uh, the Christians were in the first century. It is not a sin to be oppressed or to be made a slave or to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a sin for the government to do this to us, And the reason why we can submit to it is because we know God's going to judge them. What did God do to the Roman Empire? What did God do to the Jews because they persecuted the Christians? Well, he wiped them off the map. He destroyed them. So this is how uh, the logic of submission works for Christians when we are uh, living under an oppressive um, regime. We do know it is a sin, very clearly, to commit idolatry. And so should Caesar, should the government ever demand our worship, it is there that we must all just simply not comply. Uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp in 155 AD is really one of the most famous of such acts of resistance to the government overstepping their authority. And just by show of hands, has anyone heard of Polycarp? Okay, good, 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 good amount. So Polycarp, for those who don't know, he was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was um, at least 86 years old when uh, the authorities arrested them. And uh, they said to this old Bishop, what harm is it to say Lord Caesar and to offer a sacrifice and so forth and be saved to which Polycarp responded, uh, I am not about to do what you advise. So they brought him into the stadium before the crowds, and they threatened him with death by wild beasts. The proconsul said to Polycarp, I have beasts, I will throw you to them unless you repent and swear oaths to Caesar and revile Christ. To which Polycarp said, call for the beasts, for repentance is impossible for us from better to worse, but it is good to change from wickedness to righteousness." Well, then the proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire since you despise the beasts unless you repent, to which Polycarp responded, you threaten with fire that burns for a little while and then is extinguished, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring about what you wish. The crowds, then hearing that Polycarp was a Christian, began to shout in rage, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many to not offer sacrifice or to worship them. Let a lion be loosed upon him. And then the guy who's in charge of the animals comes out and says, well, actually, uh, I put the animals away, so we, we can't do that. And then the people frantically uh, start uh, going to the shops and houses, and they build a funeral pyre uh, around Polycarp. And this, he had had a dream, I think, three days earlier that he was going to be, be burned uh, to death. So he says to the faithful saints around him, I must be burned alive. They, they put this uh, fire around him. He Uh, prays this great prayer to God and after his amen, uh, the fire is lit. And then, uh, by some miracle, it says this great uh, wind started to blow, and so the fire was like this um, kind of uh, shield around him, so his body wasn't burning. And then they they say to uh, the executioner there, uh, stab this guy. So he stabs him, and it says that a dove comes out of his body. Oh, God. The eyewitnesses apparently say this happened. I don't know. But it says a dove came out, in so much blood that it put the fire out. And the crowds are just astonished because they have they had actually seen many people uh, die this way before by wild beasts for sport or or by fire. And it says they could tell that this death was unlike any of the others. Uh, God was making a distinction between, you know, unbelievers, wicked men who die, you know, like the two men next to Jesus on the cross, and then the elect, this this great bishop, and they're kind of um, astonished by it. So it was these kinds of acts of courage, love, resistance, and martyrdom that eventually created Christendom, that eventually won the world over to the Christian faith. And while uh, we certainly pray and pray fervently that such days of persecution never arise in our nation, we must always be ready just in principle to suffer and die for the sake of Christ. We must always have ready at hand that apostolic conviction that we must obey God rather than men. Caesar, the government, has their jurisdiction. They have their duties before the Lord, which they will answer for, but there are limits to that authority established by Jesus Christ. So, um, as we consider the year of, ahead of us, uh, we must remember first and foremost that this is uh, the year 2024 Anno Domini, the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is King. All authority belongs to him. And we want to see that authority manifested, seen on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, what I want to do is place before you this morning uh, just three things that Caesar, which is kind of just shorthand here for our civil government, three things that Caesar wants from you that you must not give them. Three things that our government wants from you that you must not give them. And they are... Uh, as follows. Number one, your children. Number two, your morals. And number three, your worship. So number one, your children. To whom do your children belong? Remember the word Jesus uses when speaking of giving to Caesar or giving to God is this word render. And we said this means literally to give back. So if you want to know to whom something belongs, just ask yourself, who gave this thing to me? Where did it come from? So where did children come from? Well, according to Isaiah 66, 9, God is the one who opens and closes the womb. Uh, Caesar does not. According to Psalm 127, verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord, not from Caesar. Psalm 139 says that God formed our inward parts. He wove us together in our mother's womb, and He wrote all our days in His book before we we were even born. So, in a very real sense, children most certainly do not belong, body and soul, to Caesar, and they do not even belong to us as parents in the first instance. Children belong first and foremost to the god who created them and placed them in our arms this means we as parents are stewards not owners of these little humans that god has given us and as stewards we are going to be judged by god as to how we return these children to him so what does god desire from us as parents well it says in malachi 2:15 He seeks godly offspring. He seeks godly seed. So God does not merely want children from our marriages. He wants godly children from our marriages. And so he appends this warning in the next verse in Malachi. He says, therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously or adulterously with the wife of his youth. So to whom do children belong? Well, in the very first instance, they belong to the God who gave them to us. They belong then in the second instance to us as parents who are stewards. And then uh, God commands certain duties of stewardship for fathers and mothers towards these children so that they become godly offspring that he desires. So God Uh, doesn't just command, hey, I want godly offspring and then leave you to try to figure it out, although it might feel like that at times. But no, in scripture, God gives us tools, instruments, uh, advice to accomplish this by faith. And those uh, tools are the various duties he commands of us in scripture. What are some of those duties? I'll just give you a couple. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse six says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this means training your children to live as Christians from their very earliest years, from birth to adulthood. It means requiring of your children faith in Jesus and obedience to his word. It means doing with them what Deuteronomy 6 commands. It says, you shall teach God's laws diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, and so forth. Moreover, Paul says it is the father's responsibility to make sure that this is happening. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that's the father's responsibility. And there are many methods by which this principle can be accomplished. Uh, That method might be homeschooling, or a co-op, or a private school, or a a private tutor. Uh, These methods may fluctuate and change as the years go by, but what must not be surrendered under any method is the principle that your children receive a distinctly Christian education, a distinctly Christian upbringing. The reason why is because Jesus says that when a student is fully trained, he will become like his teacher. Luke 6 40. So we should not expect to send our children to be taught by unbelievers and then expect them to turn out as the godly seed that God desires. We would be tempting God to expect good fruit from our disobedience. Now, granted, our civil government has stacked the deck against Christian parents who want to do this so we have to pay for the secular indoctrination of our neighbors children while also trying to fund our own children's christian education and financially for many parents this can be a real challenge uh, this is why uh, christ the king academy exists it's why we have things like the christian education fund for our members because uh, if we will not train our children in the lord uh, the government is more than happy to train your children in the ways of the world, and we know where those ways lead. They lead to death. If our children come from God, then we must do whatever it takes to give them back to God, holier and more righteous than we found them. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Alright, so don't give your children who God says are holy, 1 Corinthians 7.14, who are more precious than pearls, do not give them to dogs. Do not give them to Caesar. Do not give them to the swine of our filthy culture. Alright, so that's number one, your children. They belong to God, do not render them to Caesar. The second thing you must render to God and really get from God um, is your morals. By morals, I simply mean your biblical convictions about what is right and what is wrong. So when each of us became a Christian, we all had to acknowledge up front that we had sinned against God. This was a confession that whatever morals we had, we did not live up to them or our morals were wrong altogether. And so from the moment that we repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, we were in essence declaring the words of Isaiah 33 verse 22, which says, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. When we make that confession that Jesus is Lord, this is what we mean. So to become a Christian is really to have your entire uh, moral compass, your morality, your sensibilities reshaped by God's word. And why? Because Jesus is judge, Jesus is the lawgiver, Jesus is king. What Jesus says goes. That's just being a Christian. Now, uh, what kind of moral standards does our civil government and our culture promote and even enforce? Is it a Christian morality, or is it what the Bible calls immorality, lawlessness, injustice? Well, while there are still some remnants of our nation's Christian heritage, we Americans are an overwhelmingly immoral, apostate, and hypocritical people. We no longer believe the basic moral laws that God gave in like the Ten Commandments. There are entire denominations of professing Christians who do not even know what the Ten Commandments are, and if they did, would not bother to keep them. It is in large part because of the church's apostasy that we now have the situation we have. We have an economy that is built on envy and bribery and false weights and measures. We have parades and celebrations for the very sins that turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. We have denigrated marriage and motherhood and made uh, sanctuary states for murdering the innocent. And all of this is happening and has been done while 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. So this is what I mean by Americans being hypocrites. Okay, 70% still claims to be Christian and that's our morality. Jesus says to the Pharisees, this people draws nigh to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain, they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So I have two uh, exhortations for you on this. Uh, specific issue. Number one, do not let Caesar or our secular culture uh, dictate your morality. And number two, do not make a hypocrite of yourself by claiming Christ while your heart is far from him. As much as our world wants to normalize all that is wicked and ungodly, you must not compromise. You must not comply. You must not be false to the truth. The reason why so many churches folded like a cheap lawn chair when COVID happened, or when woke happened, or when the push for gay marriage happened, was because so many Christians were already living with a bad conscience, with unconfessed sins, and with hypocritical hearts. When people are guilt-ridden, they are easy to manipulate. When a nation is addicted to sports and television and watch pornography every day, they are not going to have courage (laughs) to stand for what is morally upright. It's hard to be courageous when you have a guilty conscience, and it is impossible to fight for freedom when you are a slave to your own appetites. This is how we got to $34 trillion of debt as a nation, because we don't know how to say no to ourselves. And this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. We've had Republican regimes that are just as indebted as Democrat regimes, right? This is a bipartisan uh, sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Liberty. Our loss of liberty and our voluntary, we voted for it, slavery is because we as a nation have rejected the authority of Jesus Christ. As God says in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Our secular immorality can hold no water our free and tolerant and liberal society devoid of Jesus can hold no water. There is no other fountain of life and freedom than the fountain that Jesus is. And so do not budge an inch on the law of God, because God's moral law is what brings the knowledge of sin, and sin is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to forgive. So do not rob yourself or your neighbor of that knowledge of sin, sin. because the knowledge of sin is the prerequisite for the knowledge of salvation. So that's number two. Do not get your morality or give your morality to Caesar. The third thing you must not ever give to Caesar is your worship. Of course, we already said that if Caesar wants you to call him Lord and, and burn incense to him, of course you must not comply. But not giving Caesar worship is really just half of the commandment. There is still the whole give back to God what is God's part that we must obey. So practically, how should we render ourselves to God? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if you want to know God's will for your life, then offer your body to him as a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12 says. You want to know God's will? Offer yourself to God completely. How do you do that? How do we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice? Well, we do this by treating every action as an act of worship and by treating every location as a place of worship. Worship in the strictest and most proper sense is to bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Psalm 95, verse 6. Worship in the strictest and most proper sense is to do a physical obeisance at the same time you are reverencing and adoring God in your heart. This is the special act of worship that we do uh, privately in our homes when we pray and publicly when we gather here every Lord's Day. And it is worship in this strict sense that inspires and informs worship in the broader sense of doing everything for the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all into the glory of God. Well, have you ever wondered, you know, like, how do you do everything to the glory of God? Well, let me give you a couple uh, ways of going about this. It says in Ecclesiastes nine ten, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Uh, Paul says in Colossians three twenty three, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the lord so what has god given you to do well give to him the worship of doing that thing with all your heart heartily as unto the lord with all your might because that is the altar upon which you offer yourself as a living sacrifice right does it feel like death to do the dishes with a good attitude does it feel like dying to continue on in that job you don't really like but have to do to pay the bills? Well, that's what being a living sacrifice feels like at times. And what turns those often monotonous routines into worship is that you render them to God as an offering. You know, you say to God, I am flipping this burger for you. <laughs> you say, God, thank you for this vomit. That I get to clean out of my hair. You say, "God, <laughs> thank you for this coworker who gets on my nerves. Help me to show them the love of Christ. Right? Whatever it is that your hand finds to do, that's the altar God wants you to worship Him at. When you do those things with love for God in your heart and love for your neighbor well, now you're starting to do it for the glory of God. That is how you turn every time and every place into an altar for worship. That is how you render to God the things that belong to him. I'll close with this. Uh, We're going into an election year, as uh, some of you know, and I expect there will be many opportunities for us to be loving and courageous and to witness for the truth. And the truth that I want you to lead with is really well summarized by our text, Proverbs 16, uh, specifically verses 6 and 7. Uh, it says in verse 6 By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So, we as Christians have really good news for a lawless world, for lawless sinners. And it is that by God's mercy and the truth of Jesus Christ, the iniquities of our nation, which are great, can be purged. Our sins really can be cast into the bottom of the sea, never to be seen again. Moreover, how can America depart from evil? By the fear of the Lord and absolutely nothing else. This is the message of hope to our very hopeless and sad world. This is the message of freedom for those who are guilt-ridden. Jesus Christ already knows what you have done, and Jesus Christ has already died and rose to forgive what you have done. So worship him, obey him, because as verse 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't expect 2024 to be the most peaceful year in our nation, primarily because there can be no peace until all our ways please the Lord. So while I do not expect much a political or economic peace, and much of that is you know, outside our control, I do intend to pursue peace with God and peace in this church by seeking to please Him, Come what may, and it is that peace that I invite you all also to zealously pursue, so that God will make even our enemies to be at peace with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. (laughs)